Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. saw on the walk-up video. We are out of the book of Jude. If you've been here with us, this is our third week in the letter of Jude, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. If you missed some of the first couple of weeks, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go pick that up. Jude writes a very urgent letter, and, and he connects with some other writers of the scripture. For instance, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you a heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I, I love that verse, but I, I think I like the New Americans' uh, rendering of it even a little better. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. If you have your Bibles, underline that phrase. An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The, the point is simply this. We need to encourage one another. And for that to happen, we've got to be exposed to one another. We've got to be around one another. We've got to pray for one another. We've got to ask for prayer for one another. We've got to say, I'm struggling. Can you stand with me? Can you help me carry this? Here, let me help you carry yours. That's all a part of this experience we have as believers. And the warning in the, from the writer of Hebrews is, listen, there are some among us who aren't believers they're among us, but they're, they're not believers yet. It's a reminder that there are people who are associated or affiliated with a church, with any local church, and with the church in general. And they're not believers, but they give the appearance that they are. And that's why he says, beware. Be, be aware of that. They, and by the way, these didn't lose their salvation. I got to keep coming back to that because the human tendency is to think that somehow, some way, that you can undo what God did. You can, they, they, they think they can lose their salvation. You can't. These guys just never had it. It's, if you look back at that text, it's the unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so the writer of Hebrews talks about that. Jude picks that up as well. But what this is, is a reminder to all of us that in, under the umbrella of what we call the church, there are unbelievers. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 13. He gives them this parable and he says to them, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were asleep, the enemy came and, and sowed tares, which were weeds, which kind of looked like wheat, 
but it wasn't wheat. It wasn't edible. It wasn't usable. But he sowed tares among the wheat, and then he went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, and the tares became evident also. And they ask him about that, and Jesus says, listen, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's me. I'm establishing my kingdom. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, it's the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. You see them coexisting, living in the same pasture, the same field. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Jesus warned us about those. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he would say, hey, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? By the way, if Jesus Christ is in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you're a believer. You're, you're not an unbeliever if that's true. And you're to test yourself to see if the Holy Spirit is in you. And you say, wait a minute, Mike, how do I know, how do I know that the Holy Spirit's in me? How can I test myself and know that? Real easy, fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's there... If you've yielded your life to Him, your life will show some of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all that stuff out of Galatians 6. That's how you know. If you see that being the balance of your life, then there's certainty, there's assurance in that. If you don't see that, then maybe there's reason for concern. He says, unless indeed you fail the test... But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test because the Spirit of God is in us. Because the fruit is being born because we are believers. The fruit doesn't make you a believer. The fruit proves you're a believer. The, the word test in the Greek there literally means to determine the nature of something. And so I would ask this question of application. What's the nature of your salvation this morning? Are you one of those who's just affiliated with the church? Among the church? With the church? And you're not a believer yet, God is reaching out to you this morning. Or, or maybe you read that and you go, hey, the test is, yeah, I see those things in me. Is, is your salvation the grace of God versus the works of man? Which is it? Is your salvation human origin versus divinely given? What's the nature of your salvation? And that's what Jude is going to pick up and write about. Now, just by way of background, since it's been a couple of weeks, he was the younger half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, who also wrote one of the New Testament letters. And he writes, if you remember last time, about a clear and present danger within the church. Here's what he said. He said, brothers, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the, necess the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for this faith. That's his thesis statement. Guys, contend earnestly for the faith. We talked about that last week. We'll pick it up again today, which was once for all handed down to the saints for certain persons. Here's the, here's the danger. Certain persons have crept in. That means they came in from the outside. They are among us, but they're not really from among us, in other words. They've crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and who deny the ma our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We, were to, we are to contend for the faith against people who were deceivers. They were influencers from inside the church, but they really have a belief system from outside the church, to be honest. They distort the faith. They distort the grace of God. They pervert grace. And they push immorality. 
Talked a lot about that last time. And they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ, the master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the person Paul wrote about when he said, listen, such people claim to know God. Remember, we said they were frenemies. They, they would say, oh, no, I'm, just, I'm one of you. I just am a more enlightened thinker. I have a greater understanding than you do. But they deny him by the way they live. That's what Paul wrote. And so they're detestable and disobedient and worthless for doing anything eternally good or righteous. And so this is the clear and present danger. And we gave a name to this person, to this mindset. It's the word apostate. An apostate is one who has had full exposure to the truth of God. And yet, defects from it or walks away from it. They remember, just the screen reminds us of this. Jude has already described them as imposters. He's not saying these are believers who lost their faith. That doesn't happen. These are unbelievers who pretended to be believers, but they're not. And eventually, they'll go away. We hear that the church is declining in our culture, in our day and time, in this place in the world. And I suppose that's probably true, but you're not seeing believers walk away from the church. What you're seeing mostly is unbelievers walk away from the church. This is a time of purging. Now, I will say this. In a time when the world is threatened with war the way we have been over these last couple of weeks, you will see people drawing near to God. Here's what I would say to the church. You have opportunity to speak the truth of God, forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and the hope of eternity into their lives today. Be about that. Be about that. But these guys, Judah's writing about their imposters. He's already said they're condemned. He's already said they're intruders and that they're ungodly. And so he's going to give us some illustrations of how that can be because the question is, you're saying, wait a minute, you're telling me that somebody can be around Jesus, can be around the gospel, can hear the truth, can witness the power, can see the hope and hear, and, and hear the hope and see the miracles, and, and they can walk away from that? Yeah. And he gives us three examples that to his writers who were predominantly Jewish at that time, because the church was predominantly Jewish still at the time this was written, that these guys would know full well historically the examples, the illustrations that he gives them. And there's three that he gives that we're going to cover today. First is what I call the unbelieving Israelites. The second are what we're going to call apostate angels. The third are the cities of the plain. And each one of these examples has a specific application as we go through this. So let's just go ahead and jump in. We call this departures. That's the name of the sermon. Departures. Three departures from truth. Three apostate departures from the truth, all right? Number one, unbelieving Israel. Here's what he says in Jude verse 5. So I want to remind you, though you know all of this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You go, wait a minute, did that really happen? Yeah. It's right there in your Old Testament. The illustration or the application is simply, this, is simply this, that God has an unchanging, unaltering posture toward those who ignore his word or who pervert it. His posture, his reaction is always the same. It's the same then and it's the same today. Now, what's the deal about Israel? What's the deal about these people? Let me just kind of give you the background of what they knew, all right? 
This, we're talking about the Israelites who had been saved out of Egypt, that Moses brings out of Egypt. Understand, we're talking two and a half to three million people. Remember that number because this is big. And it's, it's almost frightening to me. Two and a half to three million people come out of Egypt, led out of, by, by the direction of Moses through the power of God. You remember the miracles that God did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Huh, yeah, right? <laughs> Children of the 90s, rock on, all right? <laughs> Israel was God's chosen covenant people, right? They, they, God had made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And he had reiterated that and restated that covenant multiple times. He had promised and given them the title deed to the land of Canaan, what we today call Palestine. Now remember that when you hear the news, when you listen to the people debate the politics of Palestine. The politics of Palestine shouldn't ever have to be debated. God gave the title deed of that land to Israel, period. Before any of the people who inhabit the land inhabited the land. In other words, they're squatting. God gave the title deed to the family, to the offspring of Abraham. And it was the covenant that he gave them. They were his covenant people. He promised them that land. They had been preserved as a people, as a family from incredible and unprecedented world famine and delivered and brought to the land of Egypt to thrive. And they did that until they were placed into bondage by the Egyptian monarch, by Pharaoh. And God had preserved them through that and he had delivered them ultimately with powerful miracles from the most powerful ruler and nation and army in the world. God just said, it's going to happen, and it happened. Pharaoh couldn't stop it, even though he tried. And then they get out into the wilderness, and he miraculously preserved them. Think of the supply chain issues they faced in the desert. Water and food, and God, for years, had preserved them. He had given them his word. Moses actually walks down from, the, 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 uh, from Mount Sinai with Ten Commandments, inscribed by the finger of God. I would love to see what God's handwriting looked like. And he comes down and they get broken because the people sin and God has to take Moses back up on the mountain and say, okay, we got to do this again. And they had seen his presence. Now you think, if anybody could see those things, the miracles, the power, the presence of God, That's all you need, right? Forget one thing. We're very human. We're very fallen. We're very forgetful. The story, I think, that Jude is referencing comes out of Numbers 13 and 14. I'm going to set up Numbers 13 to give you the the few quotes in Numbers 14 so you kind of know what he's talking about. These guys have full exposure to all of these things. So they get to the doorway of the land of Canaan. And God says, hey, we need to go get some recon. You need to do some intel. So they send 12 people, a representative for each one of the tribes of Israel, out into the land to say, okay, explore it, get your recon, come back. And they come back with these glowing stories about how profitable, how, how productive, how favorable, how wonderful the land is. A land literally flowing with milk and honey was the term that they used. 
And they said, it's all as described. However, or but, man, you know you're messed up when your big old butt gets in the way. Because that's what happened to them. They said, here's the problem. The land is fortified. The cities are big. The, the inhabitants of the land, they're huge. They make us look like grasshoppers, their exact words. No way. No way we can defeat them. No way we can take this land. And the people, as one, as a nation, begin to cry out to God, begin to grumble against Moses and to, to really accuse God of bringing them out just to die in nowhere, to ignore the promise of God. And, and two guys out of the 12 that went, Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 no. It, it's true, everything they've said. Here's the but that wins, though. But God can give us the victory. We're facing an insurmountable task. We're facing an impossible thing here. God, though, can do this. In other words, trust God and His plan and His promise. And you know what the reaction of the people was? You, you would think they would say, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, sorry. Sorry, we just had a momentary lapse there. People ignored them and threatened to kill them. Had the presence of God not appeared, they would have been stoned to death. But God intervened. And so God pulls Moses aside and says, I got a big problem with the nation of Israel. And we pick that up in Numbers 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying this, how long? Shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints that the children of Israel have against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except... For Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. How many Israelites came out of Egypt? Two and a half to three million. How many survive? I, I can't give you the number. But the only two of the original generation, the first gen, died in the wilderness. Never received the promise. They had all of those incredible exposures to the miracles and the power and the presence and the word, and the leading, all those things. And they said, God is good enough to get us out of Egypt, to lead us through the Red Sea, to provide for us all these years, but he can't finish the job. He can't accomplish what he said he was going to do. And they literally decided to turn and appoint new leadership, fire the coach, and try to reestablish the culture and go do their own thing. And God said, I'm not having any of that. And all of you first generation die except for two guys. None of you will enter the land which I swore to make you dwell in. But your little ones, the ones you said would be victims, I'm going to bring them in. And they're going to know the land. Your kids and your kids' kids are going to come in and receive the promise that you've despised. But as for you, your carcasses will fall in the wilderness. You're saying people can really have that kind of exposure? Yeah, here's the point. Believing Jesus is not just a past experience. Listen, honey, if you're trying 
to say, you know, when I was four years old, I walked an aisle at the church, and I was baptized, and I signed a card. Well, good for you. That doesn't secure your salvation in heaven. Did you believe God? And are you believing God? Because if you believed him, you're going to stick to that. If you didn't believe him, then that's going to show. And that's what shows with these Israelites. Faith is always present tense. The judgment of these Israelites is a very clear statement by God what, what, as to what happens to people who see and hear and experience and yet fail to believe. And all but two of those first generation of Israelites perished. And what Jude is saying is, hey guys, the same unbelief that characterized the first generation of Israelites out of Egypt is what's present in these guys who have infiltrated the church. They've experienced everything. Incredible worship, power, fellowship, community, powerful teaching, life-changing, transformational things. And they just don't buy it. And it shows. And God rejects that. That's one illustration. Second illustration is this. The apostate angels. Here's what he says in Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under the darkness of judgment of the great day. Now, just so you know, 2 Peter has a parallel passage to this. Peter uses two of the same three illustrations Jude uses. And, and Bible scholars are all aflutter over who used who. Did Jude use Peter or did Peter use Jude? I, I, two of my best and, and favorite resources are completely polar opposites on this. My response to that is I don't care because it's all there. So we're going to look at both of them. Peter says this, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Same illustration. The point is simply this, that status is no guarantee of salvation. You may be raised in a Christian family. You may go to a great church. You may be related to pastors or seminary president, uh, presidents or, or great teachers. That, that uh, status, that ability, that affinity in no way ensures that you will be a believer. You don't make it to heaven riding in on somebody's coattails. So the question comes out, wait a minute, who the heck were these angels? What's he talking about? You tell me angels are condemned to hell? Yeah. Now, there are three possibilities. One possibility has to do with the fall of some unknown angel, something that's just not recorded in scriptures. That, that's one possibility. The second possibility is it refers to the original fall of Satan. Remember, Satan was the most powerful, beautiful being who was ever created. And pride caused him to throw it all away. That's recorded in Isaiah 14. It's recorded in Ezekiel 28. It's referenced by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. It could be the fall of Satan. The problem with that is we, we see Satan running around the earth and he's not in hell yet. So, probably not Satan. Then there's this. In Genesis 6, there's an incident where some fallen angels... By the way, fallen angels are also called demons. All right? That's what demons are. Fallen angels cohabitated with human women. Say, so can they do that? Yes, they can. 
And they produced an evil race of men. And God pronounced his judgment on that generation. Now, here's why I think this is the best explanation of the three. First of all, this was the traditional view of the Jewish scholars. So we kind of reference back to that. What did they think about this? This is what they thought about this. The teachers thought about this. There is an extra biblical book of the Bible. That means outside the Bible, the book of Enoch, which is useful for information, but it's not scripture. All right, just remember that. Next time you're watching the History Channel or one of those networks and they talk about the books that were left out of the Bible, no, they weren't. God never included them in the Bible. You can't be left out if you weren't ever included. You just, God said, good information. And the Jews saw those and knew those. And there's a reference in those about them. Just like there would be in any other commentary or book that we would study today, perhaps. The sons of God, that phrase that's going to be used in Genesis 6 when we read it here in a minute, is meant to be taken as angels. By the way, in Job chapter 1, in Job chapter 2, Job chapter 38, the same term is used specifically talking about angels. So it's a pretty good indication that we're talking about some version of angels here. These fallen angels were angels, but they were demons. And then the last thing is when verse 7 that we're going to read next says likewise, it refers back to these angels. It connects their sin with sexual sin. So I think the Genesis 6 text that we're about to read probably is our best explanation for what Jude is talking about here. So what is he talking about? Peter says they sinned. Jude says here's how. So it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth that daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, this is fallen angels or demons, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be numbered at 120 years. God puts mankind on a timetable. This is where the flood comes in. This is one of the things that generated God doing the flood. Now, you're saying, wait a minute, you're telling me angels can mate with human women? Remember, every time an angel is presented in Scripture, he's not a beautiful woman with wings and a halo. That never occurs in Scripture. That's some artist's depiction. Angels are always in Scripture when they appear to human beings, present themselves as humans, as men, and they have full physical capabilities. They eat, they look the same, they can be touched, all those kind of things. They manifest themselves physically. Now, what Jude says these angels did, three things. They rejected God's plan for them. They rejected God's place for them, and they rejected God's power in their lives. When, when Jude says that the angels didn't keep their domain that we read a minute ago in Jude chapter, or Jude verse 6, what, that's our version of saying, hey, dude, you didn't stay in your lane. You're an angel. Do angel stuff. Don't try to do God stuff. Don't try to do human stuff. Do angel stuff. What happened was pride, just like with Satan, prompted these demons to rebel against God's authority and against God's power and to forsake their position in heaven. And instead of heaven, they ultimately get hell. Instead of, of power, they ultimately get punishment. 
They lusted for a place. They lusted for an experience. They lusted to have something that wasn't intended for angels. And it compelled these demons to abandon their function as angels. That's what Jude is referencing here with these apostates within the church. They're They're not in their lane. And they're abandoning their place and their position in the world. Now the question is, why would these angels do that? I don't know. But I have one clue. And it's what I call angel envy. Over in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter makes a reference. Just a backhanded reference as he's talking about something completely different. Talking about the, the scripture and the things that the church is getting to experience. He says this. The Old Testament prophets had it revealed to them... Not for them, but they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. In other words, the Old Testament prophets were given these words that are now passed on to you that you're getting to live out and see kind of come to fruition among you. Through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Isn't that cool? There are things that you get to live. You get to have an experience as a believer, a relationship with God that not even angels get to have. You get to see and know and understand things firsthand that angels can only hear about. And, and these demons saw that and knew that and said, we want that too. And God said, stay in your lane. Because they didn't stay in their lane, they were put into eternal punishment. William Barclay in his commentary says this, Jude was speaking to his people in terms that they could well understand and telling them that if pride and lust ruined the angels in spite of all their privileges, pride and lust could ruin them. Make sure there's not an unbelieving heart among you, the writer of Hebrews said. These people have crept in. They're influencing wrongly, Jude says. The evil men within the church were proud enough to think they knew better than the church's teaching and lustful enough to pervert the grace of God into a justification for blatant immorality. Third illustration. Cities of the plain. Sodom and Gomorrah. How about that? That's a little more knowable, right? Jude says this. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. There's probably nothing in Israelite history that had the impact as what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's mentioned at least 20 times in the Bible. It's mentioned by multiple people across multiple centuries. It had an impact. And so what's the application? What's Jude giving this to us for? Here's why he tells us about this. When you turn grace into gross immorality, you get grievous results from God. Your appetites will consume you. Let God have his authority in your life. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. There were a couple of surrounding towns, if you read the account over in Genesis 19. Zeboim and Adma were the other two towns, but Sodom and Gomorrah were the most prevalent and most prominent. Now, they are noted, by the way, in the Old Testament for various sins. Over in Ezekiel chapter 16, 
the prophet says this about them. He says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins. And what you see in our world, people go back and say, well, God didn't get after Sodom and Gomorrah for the things that we normally say he got after them for. It was pride, it was gluttony, and it was laziness. And it was social injustice. Okay, that's good, that's true. But then why did God say, and she was proud and committed detestable sins? How did that come to fruition? What what came out of their pride, gluttony, laziness, and injustice? The things that we're about to read about. Because Jude hammers down on the final thing. There was one thing that brought the enough statement from God. It was their plunge into sexual perversion that made God say, okay, that's it. In fact, in Genesis 18, we see the Lord kind of having this conversation. It's great of the Bible to give it to us so we kind of know what God's thinking was. The Lord said, you know what? The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to what I'm hearing. If not, then I'll know. I'm going to go see firsthand what's going on there. Jude says, in the same way, they indulged in gross immorality. What does in the same way mean? It's a reference back to the angels, verse 6. Just as the angels tried to not be angels, but to be human, or to develop some hybrid race, these people in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way, abandoned their natural position. Refers back to the angels who pursued human flesh. And he says the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were pursuing the wrong kind of flesh. They abandoned God's design for them. And if you read the story in Genesis 19, they attempted to homosexually rape two angels. I would not want to be them. And God destroyed those cities. The point is simply this. The sin of Sodom was not lack of hospitality. It was not uh, just even the attempted rape of two angels. It wasn't the abuses and the injustices. That happened in Sodom. But God destroyed four cities. The, The overlying attitude, that reign of destruction that God brought on them was because There was something that generated what you saw expressed in Genesis chapter 19. It led to a sin that was not just prolific, but it was widespread. Here's the story. So God sends two angels. The two angels come to Sodom in the evening, and Lot, remember this, was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground And he said to them, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house. Don't stay on the street. Stay with me and spend the night here and wash your feet that you may rise and go on your way in the morning. Now, the question is, why was Lot so insistent about that? The angels say, no, no, it's okay. We'll just camp out here on the street. We're just passing through. And he insisted strongly. Why do you think that was? Because Lot knew the nature and the complexion of his community. He knew what their sin had developed within them. And he said, it's, you can't stay on the street, guys. You've got 
to come home with me. And so they did. They turned in and went to his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. And they got ready to go to bed for the night. And look what happens. The men of Sodom. Now pay attention to the verbiage here. Who, who shows up? The men of Sodom. Young and old. Multi-generational. Come from all over the city. They surround the house and they shout to Lot. Where are the men who came in to spend the night with you? Bring them out so that we can rape them. So we can have our way with them. There is no other reading in the Hebrew for this, by the way. It's very explicit. And the angels say, there, there's an exchange. Lot steps out on the front porch and says, guys, don't, don't do this. By the way, Lot's an idiot. He says he'll give them his daughters. I hate to be Lot's daughter. Anyway, but they said, stand aside. And they said, how dare you judge us? You came to live among us. You're an alien. You're not even one of us, and you're judging us? Man, that sounds so much like what we hear in our world today. How dare you judge us? You know what? We're going to treat you worse than we treat them. And they press hard against the door. The angels, if you remember the story, grab Lot, drag him inside, strike these men of Sodom with blindness. A miracle right there. They're running around blindly, still trying to get to them. And they finally get Lot and his family out of there and destroy those four cities. Why four? Because it was prevalent in all four of those cities, apparently. Jude says this, he says, they indulged in gross immorality. It's the Greek word ekpornuo. You see porn in there? Ekpornuo. It means a forbidden or a deviant version of sexual sin. There's no other way to read it. Peter says this, and God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. We still use the terms 2022. You think the story, you think the picture lasted? I, I think it did. So, so a little bit of clarification. I want to be very clear about this. The Bible is explicitly clear in presenting and treating homosexuality as sin. I've given you a list of scriptures there. It's not just Leviticus 18 that everybody likes to quote. But here's something else, guys. The Bible is equally explicit about any sexual indulgence outside the covenant of marriage, period. God doesn't think homosexuality is worse than having an affair. It's all sexual sin. Anything outside the covenant of marriage is considered an ungodly life. God is very clear about that. A third thing is that you'll see sexual sin is routinely grouped in with a lot of other sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists a bunch of things that are equal to the same as any sexual sin. 1 Timothy, he does the same thing. So it's not isolated as the worst sin. We need to get that out of our thinking as a church. It's sin. All right? What you see is a progression, or what I call a descendancy, to sexual perversion that draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into a departure from God. We see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's basically what Paul wrote to the Romans. Here's the way it works. 
They had the internal evidence of God. There is something in the way that God makes us. Every baby that is born has this thing in them that draws them to a God, to a higher power, to a deity. We are made to search and find Him, the Bible says, in other words. But they ignored that. And then the next step down is we depart from the external evidence of creation. We began to try to find an alternate source for the way things originated, in other words. We know that as Darwinistic evolution. That everything was and it's just developed in the way that it was. Here's what I would say to any evolutionist. Here's my one argument. This This is my whole deal. If you believe in evolution, come up with your own stuff. You can't. Therefore, evolution disproves itself because it can't self-create everything from nothing. You come up with your own stuff and we'll talk. But until then, you have nothing to say. God created everything out of nothing. They ignore that. Then they take a step down. They departed from a right reaction to God and pursued and made things their source of worship rather than their maker. They chased after all kinds of lusts, it says, and their bodies began to be degraded. You see the decline. They descended deeper and deeper and deeper into their own desires. They ignored God ultimately altogether, Romans 1.28 says, and they became intoxicated to the swill of their own inclinations. For you wordle people, I just gave you a word. <laughs> Swill. And Romans 1:29 says, God said, All right, be released to all the evil that you're pursuing, that you're pursuing. And that's exactly what we see with Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the cool thing. God even put a righteous man in their midst. To show them what a godly life looked like. Now, I think Job made some horrible decisions. Here, take my daughters instead of the angels. Really, Lot? You know, I just want to thump you on the head. It says in 2 Peter 2 that God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living with them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Listen, if you can't look at your world, if you can't hear what we're hearing and saying and doing in our world and in our culture and not be tormented by that, man. And that was Lot, and God rescued him out of that, the same way he can rescue us out of it as well. But they had that witness as well, and they ignored it. And so God rained down destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. But what do they tell us? What what, what does that illustration tell us? That your perversion will ultimately punish you, that your appetite will ultimately consume you, that your free thinking will ultimately enslave you. And the question is, well, is there any hope? Yeah, there's hope. There's always hope with God. That scripture I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, listen to what Paul writes. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And by the way, when we present this, we always focus on the effeminate and the homosexual. But look at all the other things that are included. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will ever inherit the kingdom of God. 
You can't just isolate one sin. There's a whole listing there. He says, none of those things inherit the kingdom of God. But then look what he says, and I love this. But such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I would love to have a a whole church full of ex-effeminates and ex-homosexuals and ex-thieves and ex-covenants and ex-idolaters and ex-all of those other things that are up there. That's who we are. How dare us just isolate two areas and say it's unredeemable? There's always hope in Christ. And so how do you contend? What do you take from these three illustrations? These four things and we're out. This is the last screen. Recognize the drift. Recognize that you can be exposed to all of these things, but your mind will drift, your heart will drift. Unless you grab hold, you latch on with faith. Check yourselves before you start casting blame at other people. Base your security in the current presence of God, not some past experience or some status. I was privileged to be born in a Christian house. Good for you. What have you done with that? Pay attention to the nature of your salvation. Am I trying to earn it or I'm receiving it from God by grace? And embrace the natural order of your life. God is God and you're not. You don't know more than him. You don't know more than the church. God is God and you're not. Thrive in his plan and make it your plan. And the last thing is this. Trust him in his plan. Are you doing that this morning? For some of you guys, maybe you look at that and you say, man, you know, I've been exposed to all of those things. It's true. But I don't know that I've ever trusted Christ. Here's the beauty. Today's the day. Today's the day you yield your will to God. And say, I'm going to quit trying to save myself and I'm going to trust you that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was enough and it was complete and it's perfect. I'll trust that and God will transform you. As a believer, be encouraged. Jude is talking to people who crept in unnoticed from the outside. Listen, if the Spirit of God is in you like we read, you're already a believer. Hang on to that, major on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning would be a day that we turn to you. We don't be like the Israelites. We don't be like the apostate angels. We don't be like the cities of the plain. But Father, we see and experience all the glories that we've experienced. And we we turn that into trust for you. We respond to you by faith. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.